0: While
1: Sola Scriptura has remained the marquee argument when it comes to Christians and Roman Catholics, when it comes to the doctrine of the papacy, that not only separates those who claim to be Protestant and those who claim to be Roman Catholic, but even those of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And so on today's episode, we're going to be looking at whether or not the papacy is a doctrine that we can find in Scripture or even in the earliest of the Church Fathers. And with me to discuss this very, very important topic is none other than the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel.
2: Yeah, Chad, you nailed it. Uh, It's good to be here with everybody. Uh, This is definitely another dividing line. Can you imagine here at Blessed Hope Chapel if we put a president in line, and then we said, hey, this guy is in line with the first president of the Christian church in the first century, though we had not a shred of evidence for the first century and a half, two centuries of church history that a, a church president was recognized by the churches. And we said, if you don't follow this church president, by the way, Mormons that have a, st- a president or a head prophet, the church didn't have a head prophet either, who dictates what the church, and gives them new revelation and so forth. And then we said, if you don't follow him, you are cursed by God. Uh, blessed Hope Chapel would thereby and forever after, and rightly so, because they're a the cult. Okay, Roman Catholicism teaches you must obey the Roman Catholic Pope, and there was no Pope in the first century Church, and, and it's interesting, not even the second century or third, by for that matter. And I'll just read really quickly from the Vatican Council, just to establish this reality. If anyone says that the Blessed Apostle Peter was not constituted by Christ, our Lord Prince of all the apostles and visible head of the church militant, or that directly Peter and immediately received from our Lord Jesus Christ, the primacy of honor and not one true and proper jurisdiction. Let him be anathema. Another one quickly, and I'll just briefly say this one. If anyone shall say that the Roman pontiff, speaking of the Pope, has the office merely of inspection and Direction and not the full supreme power of jurisdiction over the universal church. He says, "Let them be," or the Catholic Church says, "Let him be anathema," meaning cursed. So, if we don't recognize the Pope's authority over us, we are under a curse by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if any other church claimed claimed to be a church that done that, we would say that's a cult. And this came, by the way, centuries after the church was established, where they began to make this enforce this as a universal office and make all the churches follow the Pope. It's more of a political creation than anything else after Rome wedded Roman politics, wedded Roman religion.
1: And what we want to point out right now is it's not only Joe or myself that's saying this is a clear dividing line when it comes to whether or not somebody should be a Roman Catholic, but even as you listen to Bishop Barron and also a Franciscan priest talk about the real differences when it comes to to Christianity, biblical Christianity, as we would see it, and the Roman Catholic Church. And Bishop Barron actually even differentiates here between Roman Catholics and those who would call themselves Orthodox. When most people think
3: about the Catholic Church, the first image that comes to mind is the Pope. And why wouldn't it? Popes have often been the most influential figures in the history of the Church, promulgating doctrine, leading nations, and kissing all the babies. And yet, when we look to the early history of the Church, such a figure seems absent. There is no central leader of the whole Church, no one claiming primacy, and certainly no one using the name Pope or Supreme Pontiff until hundreds of years into Church history. While some will point to this as evidence that the Papacy was made up years later, Catholics will argue that, like our understanding of the sacraments, dogmas of the Church, and even our relationship with God, some legitimate and original aspects of the Church take time to develop. This is Catholicism
4: in focus. Well, but again, the main difference there would not be sacramental, not be the priesthood or the Eucharist. It would be the, the primacy of the Pope. And I see that as a great gift. Um, and I'm, I'm a follower of John Henry Newman, that there is a living voice of authority to determine and adjudicate disputes that come into the life of the Church that's indispensably important. And from a Catholic perspective, the appeal simply to the Bible, let's say a, a more classically Protestant move, or even an appeal to the Church Fathers, it might be closer to a Orthodox move, um, those are appeals to texts or to distant figures. Um, the appeal to a living voice.
1: Now, Joe, uh, there's a couple of things I, I want to point out, and the, the question that we're going to be asking now is, does the Bible teach the succession, infallibility, and supremacy of the Bishop of Rome, or the Pontiff, or the Pope, as they may call him. And Joe, before I even get to that, there's just a couple of things I wanted to play those clips so that we can have a good understanding. By the way, if you didn't know, the Franciscan priest that was talking there, he's giving you the apologetic already, because we're going to deal later in this very episode on whether or not it was taught in the early church, and he's already kind of giving us that admission just to start. But one of the things that has been an apologetic from Catholic apologists, from people online you might see, and even the Catholic Church itself, is that although we don't see it in the very beginning, it was developing. And so you have to give it time to develop. And that's, first of all, sets a dangerous precedence for a number of reasons. People say this about understanding the Trinity and so forth. But understanding a doctrine that is so clearly taught in Scripture is one thing. But when we have an office an office that is supposed to be running the church, that is supposed to be the very foundation and rock that the church is built upon, and it needs time to develop, but it doesn't develop until long after Peter and take a couple of centuries, their admission already before we get into some of the scholars. Guys, that's a big problem. A secondary problem before we answer that question, Joe, is that finishing statement, because what Bishop Barron is doing there is juxtaposing... The living pontiff, the bishop of Rome, versus something that is dead, like the fathers or the Bible, which apparently to him, in that argument, means that the Bible's actually dead, but we have a living pope. So, Joe, before I even ask this Bible teaching, this accession, infallibility, and supremacy, we have to address those statements because I think, one, they're dangerous, and two, they are just wholeheartedly unbiblical.
2: You know, that would be worse than me telling my kids when I'm hopefully much older that did you know you had a fourth sibling in the house and that was living with us this entire time? I know there's no evidence of that. There's no history of it, Uh, but it was always there. You just didn't recognize the sibling, red hair, you know, five foot four, a little girl, and you just don't, but you know what? We can. I can fly over house right now and show you where she's living, and that's evidence that, she was your sister all this time, living in the home. You just didn't. We just don't have any evidence that back then. I mean, that would be a ridiculous statement. They'd be like looking at me cross-eyed, like, "Dad, you're off your rockers." And they want to tell us that because they have established this new doctrine of a pope, and we don't see it in church history. We don't see the supreme pontiff, the pontiff Maximus, the chief shepherd, as they call him, the Holy Father. All these terrible things that shouldn't be attributed to any man, uh, Pontius Maximus. All these things. But we, we're supposed to believe that this, even though we don't see them in the home and church history for not just a generation or for 20 years as my kids grew up in my home, but for centuries, but you want to believe they, that really existed, but we just, we're just mistaken about it. We're just developing an understanding of just, you know, it's conspic- the Pope's existence or basically it's conspicuous by its absence in all the scripture and the earliest of the church fathers.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really dangerous to add that, obviously, to everything. And when we look at it, we just did an episode last week, and if you haven't seen it, the previous episode on this is regard to authority and whether or not it's the church, or is the Bible just simply prima scriptura, which means the Bible is is one, it's supposed to be good, it's supposed to be prime, it's supposed to be top of the line here. But is it sola, where we can test everything according to the word of God? Is it mm-hmm. the very thing that Jesus would say in John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy truth, that thy word is truth. Amen. Chad, you know,
2: in the earliest church fathers, they're appealing to scripture constantly to establish truth. But you're familiar with Polycarp. I mean, he was a very early writer, probably in the first century, uh, disciple of the apostle John. When you read, I mean, Ignatius, Polycarp, both disciples of John. When you read Ignatius, it's almost, it's kind of top heavy. You know, it's like, whoa, he's ready to strong. Because he's dealing. it's kind of like, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians, where he has to just, he's a little bit on the defensive because he has to defend his ministry and so forth. But not one time, and he could easily settle things instead of appealing to Scripture by just saying, don't you realize that that Pope so-and-so says this, and you guys better get in line? There's no reference to appeal to a human man that exists in Rome at the time.
1: No, exactly. And even Clement, who is from Rome, doesn't yeah. make the appeal about it for himself. And I know exactly. we're going to deal with that more when we deal with just the, the history of it later in this episode. But Joe, also, that appeal that he made, that, you know why? And and guys, he's telling you the difference between Roman Catholicism. Why should I become a Catholic is really the context of those, uh, of those questions that are being asked on capturing Christianity there, someone who is actually contemplating converting to Catholicism at the moment. And it's very interesting because to kind of show this, oh, well, this, compared to this, it's we have a living pope, this succession that's come down from Peter, and we can name it all the way down, even though it's too murky to even be named in the first couple centuries of the church. But nonetheless, we have this going on, and I have this living pope, and it's Pope Francis, which I would almost guarantee Bishop Barron does not agree with a lot of the things that he teaches. But nonetheless, either way, they, they try to have roundabouts away from that. But either way... He says that is living, having this living foundation here on earth. But the word of God and even the early church fathers, which we would go word of God and then the early church fathers give us some great testimonies and it's amazing what we can gather from them and learn from church history. But you have the word of God and what do you call living? A succession of popes that you can't find in two centuries, but the Bible actually describes itself as Living and active. And it's sharper so I, than any two-edged sword. It could cut through soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And My words
2: are spirit and life, John 6, Jesus. Amen.
1: Yeah, and, and you have these things being said in the Word of God. And he said, no, I need a living and active thing that's not even found in the Word of God.
2: Yeah, amen. And and we're supposed to test everything by Scripture. And, and people, as you guys, people are going to see as we continue. Uh, it's just obviously just so... Out, unscriptural, this whole idea about the papacy and so forth. But Paul says not to go beyond what's written. So, you know, and I know we'll probably address this as well, but you start making up things, you know, like the Mormons, they have the Melchizedek priesthood. Wait a minute. Only Jesus has the Melchizedek priesthood. He's an untransferable priesthood where they have the Aaronic priesthood in the Mormonism. It's like, where's the Aaronic priesthood? That, that was passed away with the Levites when Jesus said it's finished. So they make things up to get fake authority. And that's what we see going on with, with Rome. You know, the cardinals. I don't read about cardinals in the scripture. You know, I don't read about the queen of heaven other than Jeremiah. It's a pagan, pagan a deity when they, they sign that name to Mary. So you start making up uh, Pope, which papist or comes from Father, uh, which is very unbiblical, by the way, because the Pope is called Holy Father. Now, when I read my Bible and I read Holy Father, first of all, I read Jesus say in Matthew 23, 9, you know, not to call religious people Father as a title, uh, because you know he does, he warns us about that, and he sees all this coming. But I, when I see Holy Father, that's even stronger than calling. Yeah. Like if I called you Father so and so, there's Father Chad. As far as Jesus said not to do that, it's totally unbiblical. But man, if I called you Holy, that's Chad's Holy Father. That's a term that Jesus used in his high priestly prayer in John 17 of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Roman Catholic Church gives it to the Pope, so they're actually taking terms far more than that. We'll get into it a little bit later that belonged to Jesus, and given it to the Pope, which is not an office in the church, which I know we'll get into later. So that's so unbiblical.
1: And I want to read from Vatican I so you guys can see that we are showing exactly what Roman Catholic teaching has taught over the centuries. And one thing that I've heard another historian actually point out as well is the fact that Many of the early church fathers that we read from, that Vatican I, when it was written, it wasn't even translated into English yet. Much of the early church fathers of what we have today and are able to access them and actually look at the history properly now today, they didn't have the material that we have even today, and yet made these sort of pronouncements and actually pronounced that this is what the church has always taught. But here's what Vatican I says. Both clergy and faithful of whatever right and dignity, both singly and collectively, are bound... To submit to this power by the duty of hierarchical subordination and true obedience. And this not only in matters concerning faith and morals, but also in those which regard the discipline and government of the church throughout the world. And this is supposed to be the Bishop of Rome, Joe. And now let's get into how they go about saying this is where we see what is the apostolic succession starting with Peter and moving down. And it all starts in Matthew 16, verse 18. And this is not just us claiming that Rome teaches this. You can actually hear from Bishop Baron and the Franciscan priest already mentioned, talk about how the Bishop of Rome is this monarch of the universal church and it all comes from matthew chapter 16 verse 18
3: i'm close to converting my family to catholicism there is so much that feels right my problem is the papacy how can i have faith that it is true
4: upon this rock i'll build my church and it comes from christ i say the promise made to peter and to his successors which was recognized you know early on in the life of the church why could why
3: couldn't that be the a sufficient answer for say a protestant like Jesus is the the head of the church.
4: Uh, well, because you know, if like I'll why do we need? It, yeah,
3: why do we need a pope or something?
4: Well, in a way, I'd say ask Jesus because it's it's what he did. He he said, "You are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church." See, I, I say as a Catholic, God delights in using secondary causes. It doesn't denigrate him or his authority in any way to include us in it. And so he delighted in saying, I I want to designate this apostle of mine, this uh, Simon Barjona, to be the rock upon whom I build my church.
3: When looking for a foundation for the papacy in Scripture, Catholics will often look to the Gospel of Matthew. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Nowhere else in scripture do we see an equivalent statement from Jesus about any of the other disciples, and taken together with the other gospels, we see a consistent theme of the prominent role of Peter among the twelve.
1: So Joe, there's a number of things we need to get to, and before we get into the keys of the kingdom and whether or not those were given just to Peter specifically, and they would pretty much need to be to form this doctrine, Joe... What about this idea that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built? You heard Bishop Barron saying, this is why you should believe in the papacy. This is why your family should all convert to Catholicism. It's right here. It's Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Is that teaching that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built? To claim that
2: the church is not built on the rock Jesus, but is built on Peter as the rock, is so wrongheaded headed and it's, it's blasphemous. If you love Jesus and you really love him as the Lord and Savior, the creator of the universe, who became a man and died for our sins and rose again. And if we put our trust in him, and then all of a sudden you think, well, really Peter's the rock that we're built on. Uh, it takes this scripture totally out of context, with, which by the way, various Roman Catholic historians have admitted that this is, was not the understanding of the early, we have some statements from the church fathers, early church fathers as well, that contradict these guys on this. But this is just so wrong in so many ways. First of all, you notice how he sneaks in, that that teaches that Peter and his successors, there's nothing in the text. This is called eisegesis. In the Greek term, eisegesis means to read into something, to put in, you know, exegesis, ek, out from among. We do exegesis. What does the scripture actually teach? What can we derive from scripture? Roman Catholicism reads into the text. And it's just amazing here, Uh, again, using a title that's given to the Lord, like the Father, Holy Father, is now applied to the Pope by Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism, but also the Rock. Now Peter uh, magically becomes the Rock. Uh, understand the context here in which Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to Peter, and it says they were in Caesarea Philippi. This is a long way from Jerusalem. I've been to Israel a number of times, and I think every time I've gone four or five times, we go to Caesarea Philippi because it's, it, that was a full-blown pagan area. And Jesus is bringing them to an incredibly pagan area because he's letting them know that he's going to give them victory and they're going to have power uh, from who he is, you know? And they're going to have to be going to these areas and sharing the gospel. And it's there that Jesus says to Peter, you know, who do men say that I am? And, and Peter makes this amazing declaration. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, you know? And Jesus says, you know, flesh and blood hasn't revealed th- this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And in this area... You know you could see from a lot of places pretty much anywhere in Cetry Philippi this huge boulder jettisoned out of the ground, a uh, massive mount rock mountain just jettisoned, and there was this 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 cave that just went went down you know who knows how far, and there was all these nooks around it, and it was considered the 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 gate to the underworld you see, and many have looked at looked at it as this is the the gates to Hades you see this is because the, the Greek gods were worshipped pan. There were nooks with these different false gods up there. It's interesting that Jesus takes them to this pagan area, and Satan is the one who holds people bound in sin, and through Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross and his glorious resurrection, uh, he defeats Satan, and we're saved, we're justified by grace through faith, amen, alone. Uh, works are evidence of that faith, amen. But we're also set free from the powers of darkness. It's here that Jesus talks about having victory and how the gates of hell... See, gates don't chase you. People always think gates of hell and they think it's like they're chasing us. And that we're going to fight the gates. Hell. No, gates hold people in. And they're holding the dead in the underworld because no one had yet ascended to the Father until Jesus died on the cross. And he set captivity free in his train. So Jesus says, to, that's why this statement is so important. When he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're saved. We put our faith in Christ as the Son of God. It's so important to understand. So when we look at this, it's pretty amazing because it's at this point that you know, he commends Peter that the Father's revealed this to you. But he also says to Peter, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. In the gates of hell, will not prevail against it, John, or Matthew 16, 18. Now, when he says this, it's quite interesting because in the English, you could, I could see how somebody, if they just read English, and they didn't look at the Greek, you know, and now you don't have to read Greek to see this, but if you could read Greek, you could see that Petras and Petra are, are different words. He literally says to Peter, thou art Petras. Which means little pebble, little tiny stone, but upon this Petra, you see, and that's a huge stone, a, a, a huge boulder, a, a a block bed. He says, "Thou art Peter, you're a little tiny stone, but upon this Petra, upon this rock, I will build my church." He's making a contrast, and it's right there for anyone to see. That's why so many exegetes are saying, "Okay, what's going on here?" Well, what's the rock he's building them on? It, well, it's the confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that rock, the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And the church is built on Christ. And what's amazing about this is Greek, the Greek language, it makes it really clear because in the Greek, you, you have feminine and masculine, kind of like in Spanish and some other languages. And there's a one-to-one correspondence when you go through the language where it assigns, where you can find out what's being referred to. But the word Petra, pet, Petras, is... In the masculine, Peter, thou art little rock, you're little man, right there, you know. And he doesn't say upon this when he says this Petra, he doesn't use the fe- the, the uh, masculine, use the feminine, because he's referring to his declaration but Peter mentioned, thou art the Christ, the Son the Living God. This is the rock I'm going to build my church on. So, from the Greek language itself, when you, when you look Petra and Petras, uh, whether you look at the feminine, the masculine, it all points to the fact that Peter is not being spoken. In fact, Peter is being diminished, and so many times in Matthew, Peter is diminished. I mean, he has, he has the disease of putting his foot in his mouth over and over again. And just as in Matthew, you see Mary being exalted in one way because, you know, praise God, she's blessed, but she's not the blessed virgin perpetual Mary, you know, as Catholic church, Jesus. And over and over again, you see Jesus say things in the gospels, even Matthew, you know, Jesus, the, you know, blessed is the woman who, 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 who's, who's, who's breastfed you. Rather, blessed is the one who hears my word and keeps it. Jesus, blessed is your, your mother's out there. You know, Jesus, your brothers and your sisters, your, your mom. You know, who is my brother, my brothers and sisters? He diminishes Mary to the degree because he knows what's coming, because he's the one that's to be exalted. He's the, he's the God man. Amen. He does that with Peter over and over again. And here he does it again, I believe, in this statement. Thou art a little tiny stone, you're a little rock, you're a pebble, Peter. But upon this rock, this is where it's at. Upon the fact that I'm the Christ, which you just declared the Son of the Living God, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell. The the, the spirit world and everything that the the Greeks are trying to appease through their sacrifice and stuff, guess what? I'm going to satisfy my father's justice by dying at your place at the cross and paying the wrath that you deserve. So that's quite amazing. And you know what makes it incredibly clear is now if we had somewhere else later where Peter says, hey, I'm the rock that the church is built on, you guys better listen to me, or anything even close to that, we'd say, okay, wait, maybe we got to second guess the Greek there and everything else, but we don't. We have the opposite. We have Peter and all the apostles speaking of somebody being the rock. And if you're Roman Catholic, let's just be honest. Never is it Peter. In fact, it's, it's Jesus over and over again. In fact, this behold, the word of God, our true authority. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and following. As you come to him, Peter says, the living stone. Jesus is the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also like living stones, because really these little living stones, just like Peter is built into the main rock, Jesus, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, precious cornerstone. The cornerstone is the main stone that everything is built into. Amen? And Peter's calling this, saying this of Jesus. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. In fact, you know what? This is the first time it occurred to me as I read this. I'm like, wow. I think I counted eight times as I was reading that, where he's called the stone and the rock and the cornerstone, like seven or eight times Peter uses that term of Jesus more than anybody else. Why would he use it so often? Maybe because Jesus directly told him that the fact that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God, and the fact that the church would be built on him, is the fact that he is the rock itself. Jesus in Matthew seven twenty four and 25 talked about two men building their homes on two different uh, foundations, one on sand, one on stone. And Jesus said, he that built his house on my words is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is, oh, wait a minute. Did he say Peter? No, he says Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse four, and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Paul in Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And over and over again, we see this. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 22, at the end there, talks about how he is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Uh, so they heard in Matthew, Jesus already had identified himself himself just after he talked to Peter as the cornerstone, nobody was going to, if somebody, if Peter said, hey, you guys know I'm really the rock that Jesus built, not really Jesus, I'm the rock that we're built on. Well, they didn't understand it that way. They didn't write that way. And Peter didn't write that way as well. Peter understood this. Build your life on Jesus. You know, the Bible says, curse is one who puts his trust in man. Don't put your trust in Peter or any other man. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Amen. And one of the things that has always uh, bothered me is it's, it's almost like a semantic game sometimes, you know, when it, when it comes to this. Because I've thought about this as well, watching Catholic apologists read from First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And I've thought to myself, and I want to read from that text, I've thought to myself, do you not understand that it's pointing to the exact opposite thing that you are trying to put on to all of us? You're trying to espouse this doctrine. You can't find it anywhere. You're anachronistically trying to find it and scope it out anywhere. There's a reason why it only takes so long to go through the very few texts they even try to use because it's just not there and it's supposed to be the dividing line between not only Catholics and Bible believing Protestants but also even the Orthodox community. and you're supposed to divide between this line that we can't find anywhere in Holy Writ. It's ridiculous. Amen, and when I read from First Timothy chapter 3, and I just remember First Timothy, I, I mean it's amazing that the, the, this letter written, obviously Paul writing to Timothy and he's telling him how things are supposed to be conducted. And so in the church, in these individual churches, how they're supposed to be conducted. And here's what he said in verse 14. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, the big problem here, a Catholic quotes that. And they're going to tell you that this is proving that the church is actually the truth. This is what we have to go to. It's the church. It's solo ecclesia, as much as they don't want to say that, but that's what you have to hold on to. But yet the church is upholding. What do pillars do? They hold something up pillar of the truth holds it up a pillar of the truth was what we're doing right now we would hold up the truth and say this is what god's word says when i read john 17 17 jesus told me what the truth is what did he say the truth was the word the word of god was the truth is the truth and always will be the truth sanctify them by the word thy word is truth. truth and what are we supposed to do as the church of god We are supposed to elevate the word of God, not elevate the word of man, not have traditions that supersede that of scripture and simply move scripture away from being our sole authority on how church is supposed to be run. And then we move it into this. And exactly what we're talking about is what takes place. And Joe, when it comes to this text in Matthew chapter 16, that's not the only part of this verse. It's the main part, but one thing they attach it on, and you heard that from uh, the young Franciscan priest in that video is he attaches the keys of the kingdom there the binding and loosing and so to speak there and one of the things that he says in that video is that this declaration this statement when it comes to giving the keys of the kingdom to bind to loose that it was only for peter specifically and that is the case to be made that peter is the pope peter is the one that they would have to refer to and then the succession would be down from peter um, between all of those that he would ordain and they would ordain and so forth, down the line to now Francis today. But Joe, when we read about the keys of the kingdom there, is that an isolated issue there, talked about only there in Matthew chapter 16, or are there other places where we can actually find this text and see, wait a second, This isn't some just declaration to Peter that now gives him the keys of the kingdom, but it's actually something entirely different going on than what the Franciscan priest has told us.
2: Yeah, uh, that really, another twisting of the scripture, because, Chad, you you and I know the, uh, the, the principle of, you know, scripture interprets scripture, so we put scripture together on any subject, and we look at uh, when we look at the Great Commission, you know, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all the nations, you know, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, lo, and with you always at the end of the age, and so forth. And, you know, all power and authority is given to me, and so forth, Matthew chapter 28. And then you go to, to for instance, Luke 24, go and preach repentance for the remission of sins. So we put all those com- the commission together, and we get the whole view on what he's saying, when He and even Acts 1.8, you know, you know, the Holy Spirit. You know, Terry, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And all these scriptures give us an idea of the Great Commission. So you put them together and you get, wow, this is incredibly rich teaching from Jesus, you know. Uh, The same thing here. you got to put the scriptures together. Where does he talk about this to his apostles? Uh, He commissions them and lets them know they have the keys to the kingdom. Not solely, Peter. You have to throw out all the other scripture on this teaching because we see this binding and loosing, the keys to the kingdom, also in Matthew Chapter 18, just a couple chapters later, verses 15 through 18, and Jesus says, you know, if your brother sins against you in verse 15, go to him and and, and, and tell him about his sin. If he repents, you want your brother. If not, bring one or two with you. If he still doesn't repent, bring it before the church. It doesn't say bring it before the Pope. Bring it before the church, the disciples, the other believers, and uh, if he listen to the church, you know, praise God if we want. If he's not, he's been considered like a tax gatherer, gathered a pagan, because he's excommunicated from the church, which is the visible picture of the the, church, the kingdom is far more than the church, but the kingdom is part of the church. And when someone's excommunicated from the church, you're saying you, you've been kicked out of the visible representation of God's kingdom on earth, and you are now handed over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh that you might learn not to blaspheme or to, that you might be saved in the day of salvation, repentance, right? So we have these pictures here, but it's really interesting in John chapter 20 Verses 22 and 23, where Jesus gives them the keys to the kingdom. Again, we see this again. This is after his resurrection. It's post-resurrection uh, scripture. Uh, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins. And by the way, the term you right there, if you look it up in the Greek, you can just go to any kind of good biblical software and or, or if you've got a Greek in a linear, if you it's in the second person, it's uh, plural. If you second person, plural pronoun. If you guys, you disciples, okay, if you disciples, what the context is, if you, second person plural, forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. And the thing is, is we as Christians have the ability to, as, as a church, if we see, wow, this guy is cheating on his wife and he's been confronted and then he's brought two or three, he's confronted again. He's been brought for the before the fellowship. And in the fellowship is at the church, we're looking at this saying, Hey, bro, we love you, man. But you've you've got to repent, man. You've 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 sinned against God, you've sinned against your wife, you've sinned against the person that you're you're, you're shacking up with. You need to repent and, and get right with God. If he gets right with God, praise God, you know? Hallelujah, man. Hopefully the marriage is saved. Hopefully his soul is ultimately saved, right? This guy's come come back to Jesus uh, because adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And praise God, he's admitting the fellowship guess what? If he doesn't, he refuses to repent. Sorry, you can't be here. We love you. We'll continue to pray for you, man. But you are cutting yourself off from fellowship and you are rejecting the truth. And God's word says, be not deceived. Drunkers, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, and so forth will not inherit God's kingdom. We love you, man. And we're going to be praying for you. And guess what? Those keys of the kingdom have just been exercised. They're exercised over and over and over again because it's given to the church. Bring it before the church, if you, plural pronoun, you, but disciples. And guess what? That's the authority has been not passed down to a, from one pope to the next, but it's been po- uh, passed down plurally to the church. And that's very important to understand.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that you also, when you look at Matthew chapter 18, as he mentioned, that you loose on earth and loose in heaven and so forth, that same exact language used two chapters prior, right? That's right. But then one of the things, if you notice too, is that Jesus isn't bringing even something new here. This is actually, he's quoting Deuteronomy even yeah. there in that text from Deuteronomy chapter 19, where we take two or three to confirm the witness against them. And so we're, even in that, we're talking about a plurality of people. And this is not something new. This isn't novel. This is right from Jesus quoting. Deuteronomy chapter 19 on how to confer, confirm or convict someone because one witness is not good enough. He wants yeah. two Amen. or three the witnesses. the beauty of this,
2: chat is what are we doing? We're appealing to God's Word, Scripture. That's our authority. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And we're able to understand what the Lord's teaching about exactly what it means from Scripture. We don't need vain traditions that contradict these Scriptures and make it a singular, right, pronoun. We have a uh, a clear witness in Scripture, Old the New Testament, what Jesus is talking about there.
1: And then, Joe, when we get down the line here, Matthew 16, as I said, as they were referenced by both of them, but when you get down to some of the apologists, they might get a little further, and they will quote from two other passages in the New Testament to confirm that that Peter was the bishop of Rome who had a monarchical, uh, I guess, leadership role over all of the churches, and that succeeded after them, and Luke 22 and John 21 both of which have to do with the restoration of Peter, one of which prophesying it, and the other one telling that he is being restored. And so I want to read from those. And guys, there's something I I want to say right now, and and I meant to say this on the previous episode when we talked about Sola Scriptura. I remember interviewing um, an ex-Mormon, and one of the things, uh, his name's Michael Wilder, and one of the things that he said that made him come out of Mormonism was... When a pastor, when he was trying, he was very zealous. He wanted to go and he wanted to preach. He wanted to convert a Baptist pastor into a Mormon. And what took place was that pastor said something that haunted him and made him study and eventually brought him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said he wanted to. He wanted him to read the Bible like a child. Just go back and read the scripture. Have nothing else around you and just say, hey, is this what the Bible is teaching? So when we read from Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 18, when we read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, all of these texts, I want you to look at these texts and always do it in context. Maybe try just to start with twenty twenty vision, especially if you're a Catholic, maybe you haven't read the Word a lot, maybe you've only heard from these apologists and now you're saying, okay, now I can grab these texts from them. But I want to encourage you to actually go back and at the very least read the 20 verses before and the 20 verses after, but it's much better if you read the whole book, then you read the whole New Testament, then you read the whole Bible together to get a better understanding. But nonetheless, we're gonna read from this, and you tell me, Joe, and I'm gonna read right from John chapter twenty-one and Luke twenty-two, so that we can have a good understanding of what they're trying to say, that this therefore teaches all of those things that we talked about the succession, infallibility, and supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. Which we haven't found it yet in Matthew sixteen. So we didn't find it in Matthew sixteen, which typically is their bell toll. I mean that that really is the, the one that hey, this is This is what what gets them says. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying what kind of a death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 31. It said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. So, Joe, if I'm trying to make the argument they're making, the tend my sheep, the strengthen your brothers, is there any possible way that we can read those texts, reading those from Scripture, and get to the succession, infallibility, and the supremacy of the Bishop of Rome? Chad, if you had
2: denied the Lord three times and you had radically fallen away... And we restored you, and we encouraged you. Hey, Jesus wants you to be strengthened. He wants you to strengthen the brethren. He wants you to know, you know, do you really love the Lord? And you're like, yeah. Okay, man, he wants to use you now, Chad. He wants you to strengthen your brethren. He wants you to tend his sheep. And then you went around the world, and you came back, and Chad didn't do this, but then all of a sudden you did the podcast. Pastor Joe just told me, I'm the head of the entire church. I'd say, mm, Chad, I think you read into what we were saying, you know. We're just encouraging you to now strengthen your brethren. God still wants to use you, you know. Uh, we're, we're glad you repented, and and you can, and you know what, you need to sink, sink some time down before even sharing the word, because you just come back to Jesus, and depending, you know, what that fall looked like and everything else, right? But that would be a, a, that would be a huge twisting of our words, you know. And that's a huge twisting of the words of Jesus. In fact, what's go, There's nothing in the text that says you are are. You know, you have primacy over the entire. Church, and by the way, the Pope doesn't have primacy just over the church, but according to Catholic dogma, he is the ruler of the world, including the secular world. And that's why you can have people like Bloody Mary go in, in 15, what was it, 53 through 1558 to England and reestablish the papacy uh, authority there, the Pope's authority, and you know, have a few hundred uh, Protestants burned at the stake, you know, forbid the Bible from being printed because it was just after Luther's death, and now we're going to forbid the Bible from being printed, uh, uh, you know. M- m- martyring, you know, uh, was it John Rogers and 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 martyring William Tyndale because of the Tyndale uh, Bible translation because they didn't want people reading the Bible. Well, I know why Catholics don't like people to read the Bible and where they haven't liked that for centuries because it exposed like we are their lies, you know. So, uh, Chad, those texts don't say anything like that. In fact, it's actually very, very sad and somber what's going on there, but also very, very beautiful because Peter's heartbroken and He's at a fire being warmed, you know, Jesus, he's warming himself because he just jumped in the water, realized it was Jesus and they pulled in that hall of fish and like, oh, it must be Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And it brought him back to when he first got saved and they brought in that huge hall of fish and he came to faith and now he's being restored. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He's not talking to some commentators might suggest the nets and, and the fish, he's saying these, meaning the other disciples because he tried to put himself above them, which is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church does. And he was saying, even though they all deny you before this, I'll never deny you. I'm ready to go to prison and death with you, Jesus. And he told him, No, you're denying me. And he contradicted Jesus. And now he's been humbled, like, Whoa, I'm not the rock. Jesus is the rock. Not that he ever thought that he was the rock. I don't think he ever did. But then what's happening here is Jesus says three times, because he denied him three times, Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And the first two times he says, Agapao. I mean, do you have that sold out kind of love for God? So, Agapao, uh, agape is the noun, Agapao is the, the, the verb. Uh, God so loved the world, that, that incredible love when it's used of God's love. Peter, you know, do you, you know, agapa'o me? Then Peter says, yeah, he says it a second time. And it's not just because he said it three times, but the third time he said, Peter, basically, do you even, do you even have you like some love for me? Because he used the word phileo. Peter, do you have phileo for me? And Peter was grieved, it says, because the third time he said, do you phileo me, a lesser kind of love? And Peter was grieved. So what's happening there is Peter's being put in his place Jesus gives tough love. He, he wants Peter to truly assess who he is before the throne, that that he's not all that. He's not greater than the other disciples. So I just think it's ironic, Chad, that they get him being Pope out of this when actually Jesus is bringing him back down to earth. And then right after this, you, you cut off there, Chad, at the end of chapter 20, near the end of chapter 21, halfway through, just almost two-thirds of the way through, I, I believe. And he says, follow me. Well, right after this, he says, well, what about John? You know, <laughs> yeah. again, he's starting to compare himself or looking at another, guy, another brother and and, he's, and, and, you know, is he going to live until you come? He's basically going he goes, Peter, what I do with John is between John and I. He goes, you follow me. Okay. Peter had a hard enough time just following Jesus. He wasn't going to be the Pope of the universal church. Okay.
1: Yeah. He, yeah. He ends up getting rebuked right to his face. He's an awesome guy. And Mary was yeah. an awesome
2: gal, but quit elevating man. Humble ourselves before God. Elevate the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our creator, redeemer.
1: Yeah. Amen. And did he tend his sheep? I'll tell you, man, I, I don't know if there's books that I've Written on my heart more than First and Second Peter. Oh, I love. it. I mean, in all, in all honesty, and when you see these things, and I, I, it's so beautiful. Really, when we do see how God used Peter, somebody who, like you said, even in his restoration, you know, he still gets his. You know, he has foot and mouth disease sometimes. You know, yeah, and, and it's kind
2: of interesting. You mentioned Peter. I love First and Second Peter as well. I've taught through both. Well, taught all the way through First Peter, but I've used Second Peter several times and taught through several of the texts there. He's real clear. He calls himself a fellow elder. Yeah. Amen. Say, I'm a fellow elder of yours. And then he gives glory to Jesus. I think it's five, four or five, five. And he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you know, we'll appear with him in glory. But he says, as fellow elders, he goes, don't lord it over God's people. <laughs> well, what do popes do?
1: Yeah. They're no. lord
2: of the earth. They're rulers of the earth, according to Rome, not just the church, but they rule in the, in the secular world too, supposedly. Right. He says, don't lord it over people and don't serve for filthy lucre. Well, what do popes do? You know, a lot of popes, you know, they were about gold and building cathedrals and, and things like that. And and Peter said, silver and gold have I none and healed the lame man in the book of Acts. It's been said, the popes can't say silver and gold have I none. They have plenty, but they don't have the healing power of Jesus, you know? So it's just interesting when you look at that. And then he calls Jesus when the chief shepherd appears. But the Catholic church applies chief shepherd. There's another one, not just the Holy Father, but they apply chief shepherd. They call Peter the chief shepherd. It's just sickening. It's, it's sickening what they're doing. In fact, you know, they use Pontifus Maximus. That's what the Pope's called as well. Pontifus Maximus is a pagan term that was used of a pagan leader of a pagan city, a pagan priest. And they just pulled that over and now they call the Pope Pontifex. They didn't get that out of the Bible. They got that from paganism. They got the, the Holy Father from the Bible. They got Chief Shepherd from the Bible. Uh, both used of God and God the Father and God the Son. One used God the Father, one used God the Son. And then they get Vicar of Christ. That's not used of Peter or anyone in the Bible. Now, it's through Christ's vicarious atonement. Uh, vicar is from vicarious, it means instead of. So we want to believe that Peter, uh, are, that the popes stand in instead of Jesus. We'll get to that more later because that's actually demonic. In fact, you know what? Jesus said somebody would come, uh, someone just like him, the Holy Spirit. That's his role to guide us into all truth as he uses the word of God. But the Catholic church has let Peter take the vicar of Christ role. And that really applies more to the Holy Spirit,
1: yeah, and and Joe, just one last thing before we move on to the next one. It's very interesting that not only in Matthew 16, verse 18 and 19, but also in the very text we just read about Peter tending the sheep, succession is not taught whatsoever there. No, especially if you want to dig in and say, "Oh, this is just Peter," you're going to have a real problem passing that down to other apostles, as in the you know Francis and John Paul and so forth. So even in the very text that they're trying to use, there is no succession taught, certainly not infallibility, especially what happens right afterwards. I mean, over and over again, when you look at the very text that they try to use, they're they're a big problem even for their own arguments. And so, Joe, I I guess we're going to ask this question, and I want to talk about this in light of a text as well. The question is whether or not the papacy period is taught anywhere in Scripture. But in light of that, I want to bring up a text from Ephesians chapter 4 that talks about the unity of the faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, and so forth. And then it actually describes what is used to build up this unity of the faith so that believers are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And it actually says this, About Jesus. Now, it's going to place a big emphasis, and I'm just giving you guys the context. You can read it yourself in Ephesians chapter four as how powerful the supremacy of Christ is, and that he ultimately is the one who appointed these roles. Amen. I just want to read starting at verse 11 here because it is so important for us to get this and to understand the context as in verse 4 and 5, has to do with the unity of the faith, the fact that we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father overall. And here's what it says, starting in verse 11. And he, speaking of Jesus, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of, ...of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And that's why I gave you the pontiff and bishop of Rome so that he can have a monarchical system Uh, over every... Okay, I stopped. I I got (laughs) to stop there. But no, in all seriousness... We are given these offices, and we haven't even gotten into, that'll be more on the priestly role stuff that we're talking about on another episode regarding 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 5 through 9, and so forth. But we are talking about the church. We're talking about Paul writing to Ephesus. This is a circular letter, so when we have it, we know it was supposed to be circulated to all the churches and yet, not only do we not find it anywhere in Scripture, and you saw the grasping of straws from Matthew 16, right. from John 21, from Luke 22. I mean, we're forget grasping at straws. They're grasping at air. They're going after a vapor. But when we look at this, how it is not a lot to ask, Joe, to read Ephesians 4 and say, find me the pontiff, find me the bishop of Rome as the universal pastor and shepherd over the whole church. Where is it In Ephesians 4, and the question I have to ask is, why is it not there?
2: Yeah, it's not there because he doesn't exist. I mean, it's harder than finding Waldo, because at least you could eventually find Waldo, right? Can't find the Pope there because he's not there. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. Uh, Some believe pastors and teachers is is one in the same office there. Uh, And one of the things that's interesting there, Chad, is he gives these these offices to the church so we're no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine by men who lie in wait to deceive. So, it's quite interesting when you think about this because the very opposite happens in Rome. These these offices are given, and and God penned the scriptures through apostles and and through the prophets, right? And and, uh, through the teachers like like Jude and James, which were half brothers of Jesus and so forth. I should say, well, we have some of his words, right? And we have James as well in the book of James. But it's interesting, we have their teachings. The church is is built on them, and the Lord continues to minister through apostles' prophecy because we have the apostles, the 12 apostles, and their writings. And we have continuing ministry going to the church until we all attain, it says, the unity of the faith. The Roman Catholic Church subverts the authority that Lord gave, and he says, "Not." Nah, there's also a pope that Paul just didn't really put in there for some reason. And he's the one that we're to follow, and we're supposed to follow his teaching above what you Christians follow when you follow what you believe the apostles and the prophets are teaching. Uh, it's really horrendous. And what's really crazy about this too, Chad, is when you look at the fact that in, in, in Scripture, we have, the Scriptures itself are very clear in First Timothy chapter 3 about what the qualifications are for, qualifications for an elder and a deacon. And we see that also in Titus uh, chapter 1, must be able to refute false doctrine, husband of one wife, you know, uh, not not greedy, all those things. Guess what? Many of the Roman Catholic popes would not be able to be, most of them, in fact, all of them really, when you think about it, because they're, they don't, don't know how to refute false doctrine because they just swallow hook, line, and sinker, even it'll be uh, uh, elders in the church or, or, or deacons in the church because they're so far off scripturally, they wouldn't qualify. You know, if, a pope, if somebody came to me and they believed what the popes believed and said, and eventually I want to be an elder of this church, I'm like, well, you yeah, have a whole lot of repentance of false doctrine. You, you're going to have to get into, before, and you're going to have to mature in Christ quite a bit. So they can't even qualify though, for those offices, Chad, which is, which is quite interesting. And I think it's really interesting— uh, because I know we're running out of time, so I want to get this in here really quickly. When you look at the leadership of the church, we don't see the church being run out of Rome. In fact, Rome was not a prestigious city in the church. It was Jerusalem uh, that was the heart of, of the, the, the... In fact, Peter's associated more with Antioch. than He's not really associated with Rome. And when Paul goes to Rome and he talks to the Romans, or when Paul ministers, he, he doesn't mention Peter in the in the book of Romans when he says to greet all these people. When he writes these prison epistles... He literally greets people from Roman prisons, right? Colossae, Ephesus, you can even look at Timothy, right? One of the Timothys. And he never says, hey, say hi to Peter or give Peter my love. You know, nothing like that. Uh, Peter's not, never mentioned because, and by the way, Paul said he didn't go, Paul went to Rome to minister. We know that, right? He wrote to them, went there. But Paul says he didn't go to places that were already established. He didn't, we wanted to break new ground. If Peter had already established that church, why would he be going there uh, to, if it was already established? That wouldn't make any sense either, so there's a lot of things that just do not add up. But and this I'm going to go through really quickly, but not too fast for you. Because think about this. In Acts 15, you have the church, first church council. It's not held in Rome. It's held in Jerusalem. The one leading is not Peter. It's more James, the half-brother of Jesus. And it's done by agreement among the apostles. And I only read a few verses because the scriptures tell us that they came together because the, the, the false teaching had come about that the, the, the Gentiles had to keep the Mosaic law and be circumcised to be saved. And the apostles are looking at this, right? Paul's there. Barnabas is there. And the apostles that the Lord appointed earlier had, are there. And we read in verse 22 after different Peter talks, different people talk. And then we read in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles. Well, back up a couple verses. Verse 13, check this out. It says, after they had stopped speaking, Peter, others, right? James answered. James, half brother Jesus, the head of the church in Jerusalem he answers, saying, brethren, listen to me. And he goes on, he says a lot of things. And then he says, verse 19, therefore, it is my judgment. This is what we're gonna do. This is my judgment, right? And then he continues to talk about what his judgment is. And then in verse 22, after he says, this is what I'm saying, this is my judgment. Then we read verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. And then in verse 23, and they sent this letter by them, basically repeating what James had said, not Peter. So you have to, you really have to, ignore scripture. In the early church, this was an apostolic decision, but it's interesting. If we're going to say who was the head of the church there at that time, who was leading that church in Jerusalem? Well, we know James was the head of the church at Jerusalem, and he's leading this council, it seems. But at the same time, he's not saying, I don't care what you guys say. They come to agreement, which is very, very beautiful. So uh, it's just crazy. And we know that Peter was also rebuked by the Apostle Paul because he was giving semblance of a false gospel at one point in Galatians chapter two. And Paul says he rebuked him sharply and Peter repented because he said Peter was being a hypocrite like others because of the whole issue that he was making it look like you like he couldn't, he couldn't fellowship with the Gentiles, although he had been because he was afraid of the Judaizers and Peter had to grow a spine, you know? And Peter was a tough guy, but he fell into some peer pressure at that point. And Paul says he rebuked him publicly. Uh, and then you see in the book of Acts, Paul through chapter 10, 11, After that, it's almost all the Apostle Paul uh, through most of the most of the book Acts about the Apostle Paul's ministry. You think it would be mostly about Peter's ministry, not Paul's. So we're not seeing Peter as the Pope. We're seeing him as an amazing uh, Christian leader, a great apostle, leading a lot in the book of Acts, but leading among other apostles.
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting too because you mentioned that he's not mentioned. You know, it's mostly Paul after uh, Acts ten, and Acts ten is a corrective. Uh, display there on Peter, Peter who still again. Good point. did not believe that Gentiles could be saved. That's long after the Holy Spirit has already been poured out inside of him, the tending of the sheep That's and all right. the promises and, and so forth. And I understand a, a lot of the Catholic arguments on their side. Oh, well, the, the popes can mess up because they've anathematized popes for teaching heresy, by the way. And it's just really interesting, a lot of the outs and Sadly enough, for those who are converting to Rome and so forth, is the kids' gloves that they play with Catholicism, and this is true for Orthodoxy as well, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and so forth, that the kids' gloves, when there are obvious problems, you know, when things like in Orthodoxy it teaches, well, Jesus came through Mary, so we need to go through Mary as well to get to Jesus— and, and things like that. Wow, this that is, is rough yeah. when you look at some of the liturgy, how you stomach this and read this when you know you have no mention of this. We haven't even gotten into Mariology at all in this entire series yet. But Joe, when I see the kids' gloves it's played with, well, it's not really justification by works, but then you watch Catholic apologists, you watch Catholic priests, and they denounce sola fide, that we are saved That's by right. grace through faith. You look at the anathema, uh, anathemas there in Trent and so forth. And and guys, when we play these things with kids' gloves, I just want to ask, can you read through the book of Galatians? And can you read through that book and see how they are being anathematized, a real anathema from God himself through Holy Writ, and see that and just say, oh yeah, all of these excesses, all of these pluses, they're not that big a deal, and I can find a way around it philosophically. It's dangerous. And Joe, the next question I'm going to ask— and. I really do believe a lot of this and, uh, from studying it and, and you know, our love for reading, uh, the early church fathers, our love for reading some of the history of the Christian church and so forth. And I even named my son, uh, my second born after Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. And I love reading their works. And that's funny. I have
2: a grandson that has both those names. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. You do. And, <laughs> and I really do love reading their works because I, I grew so much in recognizing that the same arguments I was getting into, they were getting into as well. And it was really a, a faith builder of seeing the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean that I ever thought, oh, these guys are infallible. You know, I love Irenaeus. But do I believe that Jesus li- lived a very long life, even though he promised it was through apostolic succession, that he learned that? No, I don't believe that Jesus lived into a ripe old age. And, and so there are certain things that I go, ah, I don't really know if I agree with that but I'm always going to test it according to Scripture. By the Scripture, amen. But nonetheless, this is very interesting, Joe, because I'm going to quote somebody to go alongside with with the question I'm going to ask you, and hopefully it will kind of start us off in that direction. But the question is, it started with, does the Bible teach? And I'm asking the same question, but did the early church teach the succession, infallibility, and supremacy of the Bishop of Rome? That's the question. And I want to let you guys know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie here. I'm going to poison the well to start. Because even their own, a Catholic historian on the subject, Robert Eno, in that's his right, let's book. Let's get to that,
2: because my answer is going to be just no, no, no. And yeah. that's not in any scriptures. And we've already addressed the scriptures that they try to use to establish that. But none, none established succession anywhere. None established that Peter was the bishop of Rome anywhere in scripture or in early church history. We don't have that as well. And that he was supreme. We don't have that
1: as well. Yeah, and in the early church, we this is not, once again, I wanted to read specifically from Catholic historians. I watched mm-hmm. videos from Catholic apologists online. Okay, where do they see this coming in? You guys got to hear it from a Franciscan priest that they didn't see it for centuries. Yeah, they admit it, some they, of them. They admit it. And this is what Robert Eno says. Mind you, he affirms the papacy. Yeah, he's a Catholic historian, by the way. By way of development, the same way the Franciscan priest, you guys heard at the very beginning of this, did. But this is what he says. This evidence from Clement, Hermes, which is the the shepherd of Hermes, and Ignatius points us in the direction of assuming that in the first century and into the second, there was no bishop of Rome in the usual sense given to the title. And in fact, predominantly... He means in the Catholic sense. yeah, Yeah, in the Catholic sense. Predominantly... If not decisively, according to his conclusion, that the direction of that leadership was exercised collectively in Rome well into the second century, at which point a monarchical bishop emerged for the first yeah, time. So,
2: latter part of the second century. This
1: is us quoting from historians, Joe, but I thought it would also be good for them to hear some of the early church fathers themselves, mm-hmm. because there are some great quotes. And I think I'll probably start off with the longest one, the same guy who put together the Latin Vulgate, who they would call Saint Jerome. And this is what he said. The one foundation which the apostolic architect laid is our Lord Jesus Christ. Upon this stable and firm foundation, which has itself been laid on solid ground, for the church was founded upon a rock. Upon this rock, the Lord established his church, And the apostle Peter received his name from this rock. The rock is Christ, who gave to his apostles that they also shall be called rocks. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That is,
2: you know, if Catholics would have just accepted what it said there, uh, that would have been one major false doctrine they wouldn't have. And they wouldn't be succumbing to the leadership of a man who could very easily, and has been, these men, the succession of popes leaving them astray from God's word for centuries and centuries. And this becomes salvific because guess what? I mean, Jerome, uh, maybe he already falls under anathema because in the Vulgate, he added the Apocrypha, which uh, if you don't accept the Apocrypha, according to Roman Catholic Church uh, in the the Council of Trent and so forth, you're anathematized. And he didn't, and he's one that put the Vulgate together. But he also, uh, if you don't accept the, the supremacy of the Pope and the idea that Peter was the rock, guess what? You're anathematized as well. So how, how can they call him Saint Jerome, you know? It just doesn't make sense, you guys. And the more you look at it, it's just a bunch of contradictions. And that's what happens when you you mix a bunch of doctors of men together, you end up contradicting. Uh, by the way, he was saying basically the same thing. We were saying uh, more eloquently, though. I, think he, I love the way he put it, you know. Uh, but the sad thing is this is centuries after Christ, by the way. So it wasn't as though, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was you know, there's different leaders in, in Rome that wanted ecclesiastical power prior to that even, that wanted to pull strings politically and so forth that said, you know, well, I have the authority, but not the earliest of church fathers, and uh, it's admitted by, as Ch- uh, Chad quoted with, uh, you know, some of the Catholic historians admit, yeah, that wasn't accepted, that wasn't the understanding, that wasn't the interpretation, and Jerome says it's, it's, it's basically untrue, and... We want to encourage everybody to stick to Jesus, man. That this, the reason we even have this subject matter is because we want people to be saved. We want people to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and we want to know them to know what the true gospel is. You know, when Paul corrected Peter, he corrected him with the gospel, and Paul pronounced an anathema. Which there's so much irony here. He pronounced an anathema on those who don't who preach a different gospel, and that different gospel is adding works to the plan of salvation. And, and Paul's very clear that we're saved by, by faith alone. Just read Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 16 and 17 and elsewhere. That whole book's about that. But the Galatian church had been deceived into and they were bewitched, being taught that you have to be circumcised too. Well, in Roman Catholicism, you have to keep the seven sacraments. You have to do all these things and you have to merit your salvation and burn off your venial sins or maybe indulgences can be paid by others. This is all a works uh, work salvation. It's unbiblical and Paul said, those who preach this different gospel, whether it's we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel, let him be anathematized, let him be cursed, let him be accursed. Um, one translation says, let them be, you know, let him go to hell, you know, basically that's what anathematized means in the biblical context. And we don't want anyone to go to hell. If you're Roman Catholic, you're listening, we love you. And that's why we're talking about this because our hearts indeed and our minds are, are held captive radically to the word of God and the teachings of Jesus and we know him personally and he lives in us and the Holy Spirit lives in us and our hearts burn for Jesus and they burn for his truth and our hearts break over those who are being led by because they're they're enamored by rituals and and, and pageantry and, and big buildings and and men and, and power and influence don't let that suck you in man that's a deception man you we're, the Bible says we're not supposed to walk as Paul said by sight but by faith put your faith in Jesus Christ and look at the building that he's building the word of God, the, the gospel, and Jesus is using by his Holy Spirit to build the church of God, the true church of Jesus Christ, which is made up of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people around the world that profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the God-man who died for us, who rose again, who conquered the grave. And the scriptures warn that wolves would come in. Paul said that, not spurring the flock, and there'd be a lot of deception that'd be going around. That's why we're told to test everything by Paul and hold fast that which is good. And that's what this is about. That's what Good Fight Ministry is about, testing everything, sticking close to Jesus, and making sure, and we obey 1 Timothy 4.16. It says, watch your lives or your behavior and your doctrine and you'll save yourselves and those who hear you. And so we want to watch our lives, watch our doctrine. We want to make sure that you're saved, that we're saved, that we're walking in Christ because we're putting our faith in the
0: ultimate rock, the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Amen. God bless you guys. Amen.
0: You've been listening to The Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at one 866 Truth. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.